What's good everybody? Before we start today's video, I want to let you guys know Monday, April 4th, we're dropping a new suit collection from my company, The Standard. The Standard is not only a luxury suit line, but it's also a community of extraordinary men striving for greatness. Go ahead and sign up for the waiting list at theaffluentstandard.com. I look forward to seeing you all join The Standard and let's get started with today's video. I began to think the analogy between social media and social life, the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex, right? I'm not anti-porn, but if your whole sex life consisted of jerking off to porn, you'd be kind of pissed off because, and you, you, you'd be going around in a bad mood because we didn't evolve to jerk off over porn. We evolved to actually have sex and no one feels you know, satisfied after, you know, after an hour jerking off compared to how they feel after sex, at least if it goes right. It doesn't always, uh, you know, the, the, and in a way, social media is a bit like that. Just like we didn't evolve to jerk, to jerk off over screens. We evolved to have sex. We, we didn't evolve to stare at each other through screens. We didn't evolve to fucking type these little messages all the time. We evolved to look into each other's eyes. Yo, what's good, everybody? This is Safis. This is the star of the show, baby. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome back. Welcome back. Another week, another conversation. Chris. Hafiz, man. Listen, man. <laughs> if I was to open my emails. Here we go. To the year 2018. Mm -hmm. There was people who I've been trying to reach out to for the longest that you and I have read their books. Yes. Who we've learned a lot about their lives their stories and their experience and we thought it would be an amazing opportunity to bring them on the show yes and then this and this man right here is very knowledgeable mm. and i love when you can see the passion the care and they can put it in writing and it resonate with people around the world a hundred percent so after many many years <laughs> yep we finally have the opportunity <laughs> to talk to our newest roommate and without further ado the author of the scream the author of Lost Connection, the author yes. of the brand new best-selling book, Stolen Focus, the one and only Johan Hari. <laughs> that was a ridiculously nice introduction that I can't possibly fucking live up to. I have to apologize to your listeners. I was just saying to you guys before I came on air, which is that I am so fucked with jet lag today that I might actually, this might be my last interview because I might die while we speak. But oh, if it is, just, you, can, you can market it as my final words, right? But yeah, I'm so, I'm so happy to be with you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you as well. No problem. No problem. So, Johan, obviously we know who you are. Can you share a bit of an elevator pitch to the audience who don't know who you are about what you do? Yeah, I'm a British journalist. And um, for me, every book I write is an attempt to solve a mystery, right? So my first book called Chasing the Screen, we had a lot of addiction in my family and nothing that I was seeing was helping. So I wanted to figure out, okay, how do we solve addiction? What can we do about it? So I went on this big journey all over the world to try to solve that. I ended up getting involved with some Mexican drug gangs and the only country to decriminalize all drugs and a whole load of shit. But that was the kind of mystery I was trying to solve. Second book I wrote, Lost Connections, was about why, you know, I'm 43 now. Every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased. And I was like, well, what the fuck's going on here? Why, why, why is it that so many people are becoming 
more depressed. So it was a journey to understand that and most importantly, what we can do about it. And my most recent book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, is about why so many of us are struggling to focus and pay attention and how we can get our brains back. And obviously I went on a big journey. I'm sure we can talk about that a lot. But, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking about, we were talking before about that, the premise for your podcast. And I'm really interested in this. It's something I think about a lot. I think we live in a real vacuum of advice and engagement with young men, right? And I think about myself, for example, you know, I grew up, my dad was living in a different country. My dad's got good qualities, but he's a an unusual kind of person. Uh, like, how can I give you a sense of him? So him and my mother met here in London when they lived next door to each other. And my mother only spoke English. And my dad, he's from Switzerland, didn't speak any English at all. And they had what my mother calls a series of one night stands, which I've tried to explain is not a concept that makes sense. If there's more than one of them, it's not a one night stand. <laughs> and, and she, got, she got pregnant and they thought they had to get married. And really often she'll cry and go, he seemed so fucking nice when I couldn't understand what he was saying. So anyway, it was all a bit, like, a bit of a shit show. But, um, and, you know, my dad was not there when I was growing up. Uh, it's funny because uh, I remember when I was, i give you a sense of it. My dad has many good qualities, I want to stress this. But when I was 17, I told him I was gay and I was lucky because he's quite homophobic. But fortunately, he hates women more than he hates gays. So he <laughs> oh said, ah, son, it's as good you're a faggot. It means you don't have to deal with these bitches. I was like, <laughs> thanks, dad. That's not the, not the perfect feedback you want at 17. But I'm like, all right, I'll take it. But I think, I think it's really important that we talk to young men and we try to give them guidance. Uh, and we, and we, you know, people need guidance from people who've been through stuff before them. So I think it's really great that you're doing this. And I think it's particularly important because we have to find ways to talk to young men that are not angry, are not feeding, that are giving them solutions to the very real problems they face and not stoking them up to be angry and hateful towards women or other groups because that's not you're not going to find the answer there. You find the answer in loving women and everyone around you, not fucking hating them. And so I think it's really important that we have these conversations in the way that you're doing. And I'm really excited to, to, to be with you to talk about it. No, appreciate it. Appreciate that, man. First, before we jump into it, man, I want to let you know, Chasing the, the chasing the scream that Billy Holiday movie. I I recently watched a movie on Hulu a couple months ago, and I just thinking about you and all the hard work you put into creating that story. Man, I think that's such an underrated movie. Um, a lot oh. of people need to check it out. I just want to thank you so much for putting that story together because if it wasn't for you, I would have no idea about all the, that she went through and her experiences. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, the movie if people want to watch it is called The United States versus Billy Holiday, and it's this story that hadn't been told before about how Billie Holiday was basically stalked and killed by the man who launched the war on drugs, a man called Harry Anslinger, which is a story that hadn't been told quite that way until I wrote my book. Um, yeah, I'm really, I mean, I, I wasn't, I was the executive producer of the film, but I wasn't that involved. So I can say without it sounding like I'm sort of blowing smoke up my own ass that I'm really proud of that film. I think they did a, for Andra, who plays Billie Holiday, Andra Day, who got nominated for the Oscar. She's a fucking... She's something else. She's just incredible. You know, I remember when Lee Daniels, the director, first approached me and he's like, I want to adapt your book. And I was like, look, I think you're great. People will know his work. He made Precious, the butler. But you're never going to find anyone who can play Billie Holiday, right? It's it's mm. impossible. She was such an unusual person. And Lee was like, look, trust me, 
I've got Oscar nominations for a lot of fucking actresses. Just give me a chance. <laughs> it goes away. And we went through lo- screen testing loads of like unbelievably famous people. I think I signed a thing saying I can't say who they are, but, and none of them were right. They were good. They're obviously amazingly talented, but none of, you never for a moment believed they were Billie Holiday, right? And then there was this moment. I was, I remember it so clearly. I was on a Skype call um, talking to a group of people. Maybe it was Zoom actually. And I saw that I got an email from Lee and it said, watch this clip, right? And I muted myself and I watched the clip and I said, oh, why has Lee done this? He's, he sent me a clip of Billie Holiday. That's, I, I've seen Billie Holiday plenty of times. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I realized, oh, the, the like resolution on the video, it couldn't have been Billie Holiday because, you know, she was filmed in the 1950s when she died. And I suddenly realized it was Andra doing Billie mm-hmm. Holiday. Wow. And like she was singing Strange Fruit and like that moment when like all the like, and I was like, fuck. And I just replied going, I think I just replied, fuck. And Lee said, <laughs> I told you to fucking trust me, right? And she did it and she was just completely, it blew everyone's mind, you know? So yeah, I'm so glad you like the film. She's, she's an extraordinary human being. Yeah, yeah. Because I think one of the things that um, I'm most excited about talking to you today is that you do a lot of like really deep research about all of your topics. I mean, when, when you're, when I'm reading your books, I feel as though like I'm in the jungle with you, <laughs> you know, I feel as though like I'm, I'm, I'm literally with you and, and you're, and you're so um, intentional about every single word that you're trying to communicate to the, uh, to the audience about a myriad of issues, especially as it pertains to mental health, which will lead us to our conversations about lost connection and especially your new book, Stolen Focus. And so what was your, um, genesis to being so interested in mental health and where did that journey take you today? Oh yeah, it's such an interesting question, Hafiz, because I think in a way in life, it's actually quite hard to figure out why you became interested in things. And it's often only years later that you look back and think, oh, right, maybe that's why I cared about this, right? So I think for me, um, the truth is I, I grew up in a very violent and crazy environment family, right? I mean, they've got lots of good qualities, but you know, sometimes people go, oh, my family's crazy. And they mean, oh, I had a, you know, possessive mother. I always go, no, no, my family's crazy. Like the Chucky doll, right? Like they were, (laughs) they were fucking crazy. Right. And they have lots of good qualities in their, you know, and it wasn't their fault. They were the way they were. But so I grew up in this environment and there was a lot of addiction, a lot of madness, um, a lot of violence. And I think, you know, that can affect people in all sorts of different ways. And there'll be lots of people listening who've experienced those things when they were kids. And some people, it makes them really hard and angry. And I totally understand why. And some people, you know, there's this thing, there was a a kind of Persian poet in the 13th century called Rumi who said, uh, the wound is where the light enters you. And I think about that a lot right? Um, I'm sure Leonard Cohen thought about that line when he said years later, you know, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Like you can, your wounds can make you hate the world or your wounds can be the point where you connect with other people and connect with the world. And that's hard because you've got to make yourself vulnerable, which is difficult, right? Uh, Particularly as men, we're sort of taught not to do that. Um, So I think for me, I grew up in that environment And I think I wanted to understand, well, how could I have helped people like my family? How how can I not become crazy myself? You know, like it's a bit selfish as well. It's not like pure altruism. So I think there was a lot of, 
I think I wanted to understand it partly for myself, partly out of love for, for them. And partly because I could see with so many of these things, whether it's addiction, depression, attention problems, these problems are hugely rising, right? And I wanted to understand, okay, well, those experiences I had, they're happening to loads of people. Does it have to be like this? And it was so striking to me going to so many different places and being like, oh, this place had this problem and they solved it. So we can do that. Think about Portugal, right? In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in the whole world. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is fucking mind-blowing when you think about it, right? And every year they tried our way, the American way more. They arrested more people. They imprisoned more people. They shamed more people. And every year the problem just got worse. Until finally, one day, the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they were like, well, we can't go on like this. What are we going to do? We can't have ever more people becoming addicted to heroin. And they decided to do something really radical, something no one had done since before Billie Holiday was stalked and killed. They were like, should we like ask some scientists what to do? <laughs> so they set up a panel of scientists and doctors led by an amazing man I got to know named Dr. Joao Gulao. And they said to them, you guys go away, figure out what would genuinely solve this problem. And we've agreed in advance, we'll do whatever you recommend. So the panel goes away. They look at all the evidence. They come back and they say, here's what we're going to do. We are going to decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to crack, everything. But, and this is the crucial next step, we're going to take all the money we currently spend on fucking people up, chasing them, imprisoning them, shaming them. And we're going to spend all that money instead on actually helping them, right? And it's interesting, it's not really what we think of as drug treatment in the US. So they do a bit of residential rehab, which is worth doing. But the biggest thing they did was a program of just reconnection for people with addiction problems. So say you used to be a mechanic, they'll go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages, right? Um, they said, gave a load of help for people to get housing. Uh, the, the goal was to say to everyone with an addiction problem in Portugal, we love you, we value you, we're on your side, we want you back. And by the time I went to Portugal, it was, uh, what was it, 13 years since the decriminalization began. It's now 20 years. And Portugal, I mean, the results were just incredible. Addiction fell by more than 50%. Overdose deaths fell by more than 80%. Um, HIV transmission fell by 90%. And one of the ways you know it works so well is that no, almost nobody in Portugal wants to go back. I went and interviewed a guy called João Figueira, who was the top drug cop in Portugal at the time of the decriminalization. And he said what loads of people totally understandably say when you talk about decriminalizing all drugs. He said, this is madness. We're going to have an explosion in drug use. We'll have kids using drugs. You can't do that. And he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he, he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he'd spent so many years fucking people up when he could have been helping them turn their lives around. And for me, that was, it's so encouraging because you think about these problems that are so big you know, addiction, depression, attention problems. They're big. They're weighing on the lives. Most people listening will have someone they love, if not themselves, who's suffering with one of those problems. And it's tempting to just think, oh, this is just like the weather. It's just something that happens to us. It's not, right? These are problems that we can solve. I went to places that have solved them. I think about how many people I know in the US who've died of addiction problems, who would have lived in Portugal, would have good lives if they were Portuguese, right? 
we can learn from all these places that have got it right. A lot of places in the US have started to get things right on, on all three of these questions. So for me, it's, it's an incredibly hopeful thing. All the journeys for my book end up being hopeful because this thing that seems like it's just defeating us that's so big, you're like, oh, actually, we can get a handle on this, right? We can deal with it. It doesn't have to be this way. So we're going to take a quick pause from this week's episode to talk to you guys about our amazing sponsors over at Skillshare. Skillshare is a one-of-a-kind online learning community where you can learn all types of skills from creative to design to business development and so much more. Men, the reviews are in and people have been experiencing transformation from Skillshare because Skillshare has so many practical courses that you can take today that can benefit you, like how to find your purpose course, like how to start your business course. There's so many things available for free right now on Skillshare. So go to Skillshare.com slash roommates to get your first month for free of charge. Skillshare.com slash roommate. Guys, don't just be someone who's constantly complaining about life. Take it into your own hands and build yourself up. Get the skills to become the best version of yourself. Skillshare.com slash roommates. You'll thank me later. And let's get back to this week's episode. Yeah, so with your inspirations and, and writings and you recognizing, because I, I see that as a superpower, you recognizing the problems that you have experienced and even the world are, are experiencing, and you are actively going out there to find out why is this happening so we can solve this problem. So when you start and you create the book, what is the overall end goal? Is it more of like, hey, this is the research. We, we saw this. We, we implemented these plans. These are the results. Are you trying to go around to different countries, intimate, intimate these same systems so we can see a worldwide effect like we saw in Portugal? You know, it's funny. It usually starts with something much smaller for me. It, it sort of builds into this bigger thing. So I'll give you an example with my most recent book, Stolen Focus. So I've got a godson who I call Adam in the book. It's not his real name. And um, I'm, I'm very close to, who I really love. And um, when he was nine, he developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. I never understood how he even found out who Elvis was. And it was particularly cute because he, he didn't know that Elvis had become this cheesy cliche. So I think he was the last human being ever to do an unironic <laughs> impression of Elvis. And um, <laughs> one night when I was tucking him into bed, he kept getting me to tell him the story of Elvis's life. And I, you know, tried to skip over the bit at the end where Elvis shits himself to death on the toilet. And, and, um, and, and so I was telling him the story and I mentioned Graceland where Elvis lived. And he was like, he looked at me and he said, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I was like, sure, I'll take you to Graceland. You know, the way you do with nine-year-olds knowing next week is going to want to go some other random place. Yeah. And he looked at me really intensely and he was like, no, do you swear? Do you promise one day you will take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that again for 10 years until things had gone to shit. So he dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, he spent basically all his waking hours. It's not an exaggeration, almost literally all his waking hours alternating between his iPad and his iPhone. And he just lived in this blur of YouTube, WhatsApp, porn, Facebook. And it was really like he was kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, right? When nothing still or serious could touch him. And I noticed obviously in this decade in which he'd become a man, this had happened to like just an enormous number of people. And one day we were sitting on my sofa just behind where my laptop is there. And 
all day I was trying to get a conversation going with him and he was just staring at his devices and he's so clever and so nice and just nothing was getting any traction. And to be, to be, to, to be honest with you, Chris, I wasn't that much fucking better. I was staring at my own devices and I suddenly remembered this moment all these years before, right? And I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, what are you even talking about? He didn't even remember this thing from years ago, but I reminded him. And I said, you know, we've got to break this numbing routine. This is no fucking way to live. Let's get out of here. And I suggested we actually go traveling all over the South. I love the South. Um, but I said to him, you've got, we've got to do this on one condition. You've got to promise me that you'll leave your phone in the hotel when we go out during the day. Because there's no point going if you're just going to stare at your phone all day. So he thought about it. He promised to do it. And literally three weeks later, we flew from London to, to New Orleans, where we began. And a couple of weeks after that, we got to Graceland. And when you get to the gates of Graceland, and this is even before COVID, there's no person to show you around. What happens is um, you're handed an iPad and you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go right. It tells you about whatever the room you're in is. Um, and and in every room you go into, there's like a picture of that room on the iPad. So what happens is everyone kind of just walks around Graceland staring at their iPad. So I'm getting more and more like pissed about it. I'm just like, look look around you, everyone, right? And we got to the jungle room that was Elvis's favourite room. It's got loads of fake plants in it. And there's this couple, a Canadian couple who was standing next to us. And the guy, the man turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look. If you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I kind of laughed out loud. I thought he was kidding. <clears throat> and I turn and look at them and they're just swiping back and forth. And I lean over and I said, hey, sir, there's, um, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head. Because yeah. look, <laughs> we're actually in the jungle room. You don't have to look at it on your iPad. We're actually there, right? <laughs> and they looked at me like I was completely insane and backed, backed out of the room. And I turned to my godson, Adam, to, to laugh about it. And he was standing in a corner staring at Snapchat because from the minute we landed, he could not stop. It was like a a kind of compulsion. He couldn't stop. And I, and I went up to him and I did that thing that is never a good idea with a teenager. I tried to grab the phone out of his hand. <laughs> and I, said to him, I said to him, look, I know you're afraid of missing out. But this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not showing up at your own life. You're not, you're not present at the events of your own existence. This is no way to live. And he stormed off. And, you know, not, I mean, I understand it. And, and so that day I wandered around Memphis on my own and I found him that night in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying down the street. And he was sitting by the swimming pool staring at his phone at Snapchat. And I came up to him and I apologised for getting so angry. And he didn't look up. But he said... I know something is really wrong and I don't know what it is. And that's when I sort of realised, oh, we we came away so we could try to deal with this problem of attention, this problem of not being present, but there was nowhere to go because that problem was everywhere, right? It was all around us. There wasn't any escape. And that's when I thought, oh, I need to investigate what's happening here. I need to, this, this needs to be my next book. Mm. So what's so interesting, Johan, as you're talking Chasing the Scream is about addiction. Mm -hmm. Lost Connection is about depression. Stolen Focus is about attention. But I really look at all three of those books about the same problem. Hmm. And that same problem is the disconnected 
nature of humanity from ourselves and um, society. And so to me, like, as you were talking, as you were painting this picture, I, I, I'm seeing this as something that's so interwoven, interconnected to everything that you've been talking about. So after finishing Stolen Focus and after realizing all things that you realize, do you see how the addiction, um, depression and attention is so interconnected with one another? Uh, such an interesting question, Hafiz, and I think, I think there's, I think there's lots of ways. But one of one of them, <clears throat> how would I put it? Ev everyone listening knows that they have natural physical needs. Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that everyone has natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we built is good at lots of things, right? I'm glad to be alive today. I'm fucking thrilled by Netflix and dentistry and all sorts of things. But we have been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs that people have. And when you deprive people of their psychological needs, they feel like shit and that will manifest in all sorts of ways. Some people will anesthetize themselves with drugs or porn or gambling. Um, not that I'm opposed to drugs, porn or gambling in, in you know, in a reasonable amount of measure. Um, you know, some people will just become depressed and feel miserable. Some people will become fixated on looking at their phones. There's, there's a whole array of things. And again, I'm, Again, there's a healthy relationship with phones we can have. But so I think you're totally right that the kind of underlying theme that connects a lot of these things, I mean, there's, there's lots of them and we could talk about lots more and I'm sure we will. But I think the heart of it for a lot of people is these these unmet needs. And you see this, think about, think about something as basic as when a factory shuts down in a town, over the next five years, the, the death rate from overdose more than doubles right? Now, again, everyone, when they hear that, it's not rocket science, right? No one's going to struggle to understand that. Um, when you take away dignity and meaning from people, some of them will just despair, right? Some of them will find other sources of meaning. But but we, we have a culture where people are being humiliated and deprived of what they need. Um, and that's going to manifest in all sorts of pathologies. And what we need to do is deal with the underlying problem, right? We've got to deal with the underlying, we've got to help people to get their needs met and realize it's not your fault that you feel this way because we're, we're so taught in, in, in our culture to think if something's gone wrong, it's your fault, it's on you. Or the solution is just to be toxically angry with the other side of the political divide or, or whatever. Either it's your fault or it's that fucking tribe over there fucked you over. Um, Neither of which is a healthy, I mean, there are things that both tribes get wrong and there's legitimate reasons to be angry, but those are not going to get your needs met. Those two ways of being are not going to get your needs met. There are ways people can get their needs met. And I saw those things happening all over the world, healthy ways of getting people's needs met. But yeah, and I think if you think about this in relation to attention in particular, I thought about this a lot for Stolen Focus that like, how would I put it? I would say to anyone listening Think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good dad, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is. That thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of focus and attention. And when focus and attention break down, and there's really good evidence they're breaking down now, 
your ability to your ability to achieve your goals starts to break down. Your ability to solve your problems starts to break down. You become less competent, right? When you can't pay attention, I know the periods of my life when I've struggled to pay attention, you feel incompetent because you kind of are incompetent when you can't pay attention you're, or you're more incompetent. Uh, everything becomes harder to do. So that's why I think it's particularly important to get to grips with this attention park. When you start to get your attention back, you start to become competent again. And that has a whole cascading effect. When you feel confident, you, when you are competent and can get things done, you're, you're just better at everything. You're less depressed. You're less vulnerable to being, you know, trying to anesthetize yourself. You, you, does that ring true to you? No, 100%. 100%. No, literally, as you were talking, it, it, it kind of seemed like like, I don't know, the way my brain is 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 listening to you talk is like my brain is painting a picture because I see your books being written in reverse. Like, hmm. I oh, see it like, you know, I see because you, because focus has been stolen and you lack the ability to pay attention deeply, you also lack the ability to get into flow state, which you talk about in your book, and mm -hmm. to achieve great tasks at hand. If you're not able, to, as a, especially as a man, to achieve great tasks at hand, you begin to feel incompetent, you begin to feel um, lack of confidence, and that leads you to depression. And through mm -hmm. that depression, depression will also lead you to isolation. And that isolation will also lead you to wanting to feel better about yourself, which then leads you to all forms of addiction to be able to supplement the pain that's going on in your life with whatever vices that are going on that you're that you're indulging in so literally what you described is a hundred percent accurate even to the point where i once heard from a, a, a very wise woman her name is stacy tisdale she said when she was doing research about what's one of the leading causes of fathers leaving the home not the leading cause of single mother, but just fathers who are in the home, leaving the homes is that when men lose their jobs and men feel like they're no longer productive, a lot of men don't even want to be around and rather be by themselves and be a quote unquote failure as a father. So literally, I see what you're describing, how the lack of focus leads to a lack of competence and that leads to a slew of other problems. It makes absolutely perfect sense. All right, we're going to take a quick break from this week's episode to talk to you guys about amazing new sponsors over at Shortform. Guys, you know part of the leveling up process is that you have to become educated. You have to improve your mind because a man with a powerful mind is a powerful man indeed. So the amazing thing about short form is short form allows a lot of you guys who are not the most apt at reading to be able to get amazing summaries of books. So this includes books that you may be interested in reading, books you've read in the past, or simply books that you just want to get more information about. So go to shortform.com slash roommates get your five-day free trial of short form i'm telling you you guys will love it remember one of my favorite books is 12 rules for life by dr jordan peterson and i'll be honest with you guys that book is a bit of a dense book but the amazing thing about short form is it gives you an amazing summary of the book before you read it so you have a better understanding of it go to shortform.com slash the roommates sign up today start leveling up your mind and let's get back to this week's episode that's so interesting. I'm just thinking about what you're saying because there's so much, so much in it, and I think, I, th I think you're right. 
And these big factors that sort of humiliate people and then they're taught to think it's, it's something wrong with them. Um, I think you're totally right. And what, so after I came back from Memphis for this trip to, from this trip to Graceland, I remember thinking about this because I, at that time, I really was blaming myself for my attention problems, right? I was like, basically I had two stories in my head about why I was struggling to pay attention. One was, you're weak. You're not strong enough. Fucking pull yourself together. Why can't you resist this shit? And the other one was someone invented the smartphone and that fucked me over, right? I later realized these were ridiculously simplistic stories. In fact, wrong in many ways. Um, so initially what I did is I, because those were the two stories I had in my head, um, I was in this lucky position where actually they were just making the, they just bought the rights to the Billy Holiday film. So I had a load of money and I thought, fuck it, I'm just going to get out of here. So I, I went away for three months with, and I went away with no smartphone and no laptop that could get online. So I had three months completely off the internet. And we can talk about what happened. I was amazed by how much my attention came back. But actually, after I came back from that, I, I sort of, I thought, oh, well, from now on, I'll just, you know, I'll massively restrict my access to all this stuff. And actually, I very quickly went back to being almost as bad as I'd been before I went away, right? I just couldn't sustain it. That's when I thought, oh, how, what's actually happening here? So that's when I went on this really big journey all over the world from Miami to Moscow to Melbourne to interview over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus all over the world and do a lot of research on their, on what they've, they've learned. And what I learned from them is there's actually scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse. Some of them are in our technology, but actually they go really widely. The food you, we eat is fucking up our ability to focus and pay attention. The sleep we don't get is fucking up our ability to pay attention. The hours we work, there's a whole big range of factors. Um, and actually loads of these 12 factors that, that I write about in the book that have been proven to increase to, to make your attention worse, have been hugely rising in recent years, right? And that's why the book is called Stolen Focus because your attention didn't collapse. Your attention's been stolen from you by these big forces. But once you understand those forces, you can actually begin to take them on. Together, we can take them on. You can protect yourself to some degree and we can take on these forces and then we can start to get our brains back. But it requires this shift in psychology to, to not just see it as a problem in willpower. And it's funny, there's this... There's a moment very early in the research for the book where I had a kind of insight about willpower. So there's this guy called Professor Roy Baumeister, who's a brilliant scientist, who's been studying willpower for like 30 years. He wrote a book called Willpower, right? He's <laughs> the leading dude on willpower in the world, right? So I go to interview him and I'm like, so I'm thinking of writing a book about attention and focus, why it's getting worse. I'm really keen to understand your, you know, your, how your insights apply to it. And he said, I can't remember exactly how he said it, it's in the book. He said, oh, it's interesting you say that because I've noticed my own attention's got much worse. I play video games on my phone all the time. I'm just playing Candy Crush. And I'm sort of sitting there and I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> Didn't you write a book called Willpower? Aren't you the leading expert <laughs> on willpower in the world? And you're sitting here telling me you play Candy Crush all the time. It was like the end of the, the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers where they realised everyone's been fucking body snatched and replaced by the aliens. I was like, if even this is happening to you, fuck me, what are we going to do? And then I sort of realised, oh, actually, just focusing on individual willpower, there's a lot we can do as individuals that I talk about in the book. But actually, just being like, fucking discipline yourself and have willpower, just saying that to yourself, 
the truth is it just doesn't get you very far, right? What you've got to do is actually understand these deep factors and then deal with the deep factors. Just trying in the moment to go, oh, I'll resist this temptation, I'll resist that temptation. I mean, try it. I'm not against it. But the truth is it's not going to get you that far. You've got to understand the deeper causes. Yeah, that was one of my curiosities of why you named the book Stolen Focus. Because I think we all had a similar experience where it was just like, I put the blame on myself. It's I'm going to these things. I'm not paying attention. I'm not competent enough. But when I hear the title Stolen, and then I watch some of your interviews and see and some of the factors that you explain in your book, how it is intentional from these, you know, ad companies, social media uh, platforms that they are intentionally trying to keep us on these platforms for monetary games to the people that are putting the ads on their platform. And that's when my mind exploded. It's like, okay, if I'm dealing with this, and I know I have, you know, want the least to want to, you know, trying to do better, you know, going after my willpower, but these things are designed to keep me here and they are far more advanced in their knowledge with AI and all that kind of stuff. We ain't gonna go down that road, but <laughs> it, it was, uh, I want, I would like to know to name uh, at least one of each factors as far as like, what is something that you can do today that somebody watching this video that can help with their intention and focus. And then what is, how is a way that their attention and focus is being stolen that they may not be aware of? Yeah, so for each of the causes, the 12 causes that I write about, there's sort of two ways I think we've got to respond to this. I think of them as defense and offense. There's loads of things that we can do as individuals to protect ourselves and our kids. And I'm passionately in favor of that. And they'll really help. And I go through lots of them. I'll give you an example of one of the problems and one of the solutions in a minute. But I want to be really honest with people. Um, that will really help, but it will only get you so far because at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and going, hey, buddy, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't itch so much. And you want to go, well, fuck you. I'll fucking learn to meditate. That's good. But you need to stop pouring this itching powder on me, you cunt. You know, so the the so I'll give you an example of one of the causes and then two different ways we can solve it, if that's OK. To, to these two levels, because it gives you an example of the kind of wider way of thinking about it. So I went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to interview one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, an amazing man named Professor Earl Miller. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. Human brain hasn't changed in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change any time we're going to see. You can only think about one or two things at a time. But what's happened is we've, we've fallen for a massive delusion. The average American teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens is scientists get people into labs, not just teenagers, older people, and they get them to try to do more than one thing at a time. And they always discover the same thing. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle really quickly. Uh, wait, what did, what did Chris just ask me? What was that message on WhatsApp? What's this person saying on Facebook? Shit, what does it say on the TV happened in Ukraine? Wait, what's Chris asking me again? You're, you're juggling, right? And it turns out that comes at a really big cost. The kind of fancy term for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll remember less of what you do. You'll be much less creative. And when I say that, it sounds like a small effect, 
It's huge. I'll give you an example. This is a pretty small study, but it's backed by a wider body of evidence. You know, Hewlett Packard, the printer company, they got, who always calls fucking paper jams in my experience, but let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> they got a scientist in to study their workers. And what he did is he split their workers into two groups. And the first group was told, just get on with your work, whatever it is, and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, get on with your job, whatever it is, and you're going to have to answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. So pretty much how most of us live. And then at the end of it, this scientist gave an IQ test to both groups. And what he discovered is the group that had not been interrupted scored 10 IQ points higher than the group that had been interrupted. To give you a sense of how big that is, if we all sat down now and got stoned, we smoked a fat spliff together, our IQs would go down in the short term by five points. So in the short term, being chronically distracted is twice as bad for your ability to focus as getting stoned. You would be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time than you would sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and being constantly distracted. Now, to be oh, clear... Video about to crazy. They're about to be sitting <laughs> to their bosses, but like, listen, watch this clip right here. <laughs> well, it's true. When you get people who say, you know, like bosses say, you know, must be good at multitasking in a in a, in a um, yeah. job application, yeah. job description, you want to go to them, you may as well put must be fucking stoned all the time. For, yeah. have one, that's yeah. good to you, right? So this is why Professor Miller said to me, we're living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of all these interruptions. So you think about that problem, right? I think most people listening are going to, that's going to be playing out in their life right now, right? So you think, what can we do about that? And there's sort of two levels at which we've got to deal with that. So there's the individual level, right? And I go through dozens of things we can do as individuals. I'll give you an example. I feel like a real fucking QVC host here, but I'll show you. Right here, I have, uh, for people who can't see, this is called a K-safe. These people should so fucking be paying me commission, but because their sales are going to say, right man, up. I'm tired of you promoting them without them giving you that money, man. You got, you got it tomorrow. You got to get the money. <laughs> to be fair, they have helped my life in other ways. So basically, as you can see, this is a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn this dial at the top, you push the button, and it locks your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day, right? I use that four hours a day. I won't sit down and watch a film with my friends unless we imprison our phones. I won't let people come round for dinner unless we all put our phone in the phone jail, right? And it's difficult at first. People get a bit panicked. Um, they're like, oh, maybe someone said something on Twitter. I'm like, it doesn't fucking matter, right? You're not the president of the United States. You don't have to give orders for the invasion of Ukraine, right? It's not that fucking important that you can't take an hour and a half with your phone away, right? Um, uh, but when you, they find it difficult, but then when you start to get your focus back, it's so great. So that's an example of like an individual thing we can do. But I'm conscious loads of people will hear me saying that and totally rightly are going to think, well, fuck off. I can't do that. I've got a job, right? I, you know, um, how my boss might message me. I can't, I can't take my phone away. So there's a place that built a solution to this. It's one of many kind of bigger solutions that I talk about in the book. In France, in 2018, they were having a big crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. And, and um, under pressure from like labour unions, workers, the French government set up an inquiry to figure out, well, what's going on here? Why is everyone so burned out? And what they found out is that 35% of French workers felt they could never stop checking their phones or reading their email uh, because their boss might message them at any time of the day or night. And if they didn't answer, they could be in trouble, right? So I can give all those people 
all sorts of lovely lectures about, oh, the benefits of unplugging if you sleep more. That's not going to be a sort of advice to them. That's going to be a fucking taunt. They can't do that, right? So that's why, again, under pressure from labor unions, the French government would never have done it if they weren't pressured. Um, the French government introduced a really simple reform. It's the equivalent of a case safe for everyone. It's called the right to disconnect. And it said that every French worker, your, your work hours have to be written down in your contract and you have a legal right when you're not working unless they pay you overtime to not check your email and not check your phone, right? So when I went to Paris to talk to people about this, um, just before I went there, Rent-A-Kill, the pest control company, got fined 70,000 euros, um, which is about, what is that, $60,000. I think that's right. Um, for for um, for trying to get one of their workers to check his email an hour after he left work, right? Now, you can see how that's a collective change that sets people free to make the individual changes they want to make. So you've got to have both levels. Honestly, I think it's bullshitting people to only talk about the individual levels because some people are going to be privileged and lucky and they can make these individual changes now. And there's definitely some changes people can make that I talk about in the book for themselves and their kids. But we've also got to fight together for the bigger stuff. Otherwise, it's just sort of, it's just kind of like privilege. It's like going up to a homeless person and saying, do you know what would make you feel better, mate? Um, why don't you go and buy a lovely steak in that restaurant? And you're like, well... I can't fucking do that, right? So you've got to give people the collective solutions that get to the point where they can actually do the thing they've got to do. No, that, that, that makes so much sense, Johan. So the first thing that you said that stood out to me was the inability to multitask. Mm. And, 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 and there's like, I don't want to ramble too much, but I'm going to tell you two brief stories. Sure. So I cannot listen to music and work. Hmm. I cannot. And some people might be in this room, <laughs> listen to music and work. I can definitely do that. <laughs> and, and, and the reason being is because when I'm listening to music, I'm hearing the words and it's like someone's conversing with me. Hmm. And I realized that it's like having someone talk to me in a conversation and me have to also work at the same time. So my brain can't do those two things. So what I've come to realize, even going back to what we all shouldn't be doing, texting and driving, <laughs> what, what I realized is texting and driving is never texting and driving. Mm. It's texting or driving. <laughs> you know what I mean? So when I'm texting, I ain't driving. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's to the point where I, I realized that if I was to send a message, mom, you know, this was years ago. I don't do this anymore. <laughs> when I was to send a message, I look at the road. I make sure no one's within a 10 second radius of me. And I text and my brain is not focused on driving. So your point about how so many people think that they're multitasking but they're really doing one or the other or the, the doing a myriad of tasks is deteriorating their ability to succeed at one thing is so powerful. And then the last thing that I love that you communicated is how problems are multifaceted issues with multifaceted solutions. So you have the typical conservative argument, right, which is all personal responsibility. Then you have the typical liberal argument, if you want to call it that, which is all a collective societal, you know, solutions. 
and it's not either or, it is both. And what I love so much about your readings, and which is why, you know, Lost Connection is right there on my bookshelf, you know, <laughs> and I love it so much because in, in, in Lost Connection and in Stolen Focus, you always emphasize both of those things and you provide that, yes, there has to be personal responsibility with the individual, but as a society, we need to work together to create a change. I think you've put that so well. You know, is you know the British um, singer David Bowie who died a few years back. So mm -hmm. he used to have <laughs> when he performed. Sometimes he didn't want to go on stage, so he had someone who pretended to be him. And I feel like I could just send you on stage to pretend to be me. I think people would be like, <laughs> <laughs> "I know you're doing my you're doing my tunes better than I can." But no, you're totally right. And I think there's, I, I always find it really dumb when people put individual solutions, posit them against collective solutions. It's like. It's just obvious we need both, right? It's like, it just seems to be bizarre. Like, obvious, why are they Why are they opposed? And collective solutions are a way of taking individual responsibility. Because sometimes people hear, oh, there's this individual stuff that I can do. And then there's this sort of collective stuff that, you know, what some politician somewhere can do. And you always go, no, politicians are only ever as good as the pressure that's put on them, right? They're not going to wake up one day and not be cunts, right? So I have to be careful with, as an Using that word with Americans, I know, because British <laughs> people mean it very... My mother is Scottish, so if you said to my mother, how do you get to the post office? She'd go, so go at this door, go right, you'll see a bunch of cunts standing there, go right <laughs> there. you'll see another bunch of cunts, that's the post office, right? And it's no disrespect to anyone, so sorry, I've got to be really uh, <laughs> careful about that. It's, it's very unfortunate. But no, you're totally right. I mean, the evidence is so clear that you're, that, that you're right, Hafiz. So think about distracted driving. There's a really interesting guy called Professor David Shaler at the University of Utah. So they study distracted driving, obviously in uh, driving simulators, because you can't just put people on the road and study it there. Um, and yeah, being distracted is as bad for you as being drunk in terms of your the safety, your safety on the road. Um, or think about even this study really blew me away. There was a small study um, by Professor Larry Rosen, I think. Um, it's really simple. They get a bunch of students to watch a lecture and they split them into three groups. And the first group gets no text messages. The second group gets uh, four text messages. The third group gets eight text messages. And then they, they all get the same exam on the lecture they just listened to. <clears throat> and the people who got four text messages did much worse than the people who did got none. And the people who got eight text messages did much worse than the other two. But the scale of the decline was amazing. Just getting eight text messages an hour, which doesn't sound like very much, damaged their performance on the test by 30%, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I would argue we're all losing that 30%, not all of us, but a, a huge number of us. That's a lot of fucking brain power for a species to lose, to lose 30% of your ability to just absorb what you're taking on. So yeah, the, and, and it's interesting as well, because if you think about how this interacts, right? So you mentioned before, Chris, that this technology is designed to hack and invade us. We can deal with that. I'll talk about why if you like. But the way I think about it is if you think about this technology as like a virus, right? Anytime it came along, it, it would have affected us, right? This technology designed to do this would have had an effect on us. But it's like it came along at a moment when our immune system was already down because we were mm. already doing loads of things that were actually fucking up our attention already. So think about one that really, that is the one of the causes that most, the 12 causes that most surprised me and the one that if I'm honest, I find hardest to, to, to deal with in my own life. So food, it turns out the way we eat 
is really damaging our ability to focus and pay attention and think clearly. And there's there's this really interesting new movement called nutritional psychiatry of psychiatrists who are looking at how the way we eat is affecting the way our brains work, right? And I interviewed lots of them and other people. And from them, I learned there's basically, I mean, there's a debate about this, there's probably more, but there's at least three ways in which it's the food we currently eat, the standard American British diet is damaging our attention. So the first is, imagine you have the standard American breakfast, what I grew up eating. Um, You know, you have sugary cereal or you have like white bread, white toast with butter on it, right? What that does is it releases a huge amount of energy really quickly into your brain. And it feels great. You're like, fuck, I'm awake. The day has begun. But what what happens is because that releases so much energy so quickly, what happens is you'll get to your desk or your kid will get to their school desk and you'll just get an enormous energy slump. And then you get what's called brain fog where you can't think very clearly. And and you, you have to wait until you get another kind of sugary carby treat or some more, you know, something like that. Um, the way we eat at the moment puts us on like a roller coaster of energy spikes and energy crashes throughout the day. Whereas if you eat, say, oatmeal in the morning, that releases energy very steadily. You won't get those patches of brain fog, right? Uh, the way um, the British nutritionist Dale Pinnock put it to me is it's like we're putting rocket fuel into a mini. You know, those little British cars from the 70s. They'll go really quickly and then they'll just stop right? What we need to do is give our bodies the fuel that they evolved to have. The second way in which the way we eat is damaging our attention is that um, for your brain to function properly, you need certain nutrients that our diets are really lacking. So a good example would be omega-3s, which you get in fresh fish, sardines. And it turns out, unfortunately, supplements just don't do it. Your body doesn't absorb nutrients from supplements in the way it does from actual food. The third way is for me, actually, the freakiest, which is it's not just that our diets are lacking food, uh, lacking the nutrients you need. They actually contain chemicals that act on your brain like drugs. So there was a study in Britain in a city called Southampton in 2007, where they got nearly 300 kids and they split them into two groups. And the first group was just given water to drink. And the second group was given water that was laced with loads of the synthetic dyes that are in the food you and your kids eat all the time and you get in supermarkets. Um, And they monitor the kids. And the kids who drank the synthetic dyes were significantly more likely to become manic, hyperactive, to struggle to focus. So actually in Europe, they banned in the wake of that study all these, uh, most of these dyes. But we didn't ban them in the United States. And I'm sure that explains a big amount, not all of it, obviously, but some of the gap between why ADHD is so much higher in the US than in, in Britain. So you can see, and again, you know, that is one of the, look, I don't know if you can see this, but I would hold it up like the case safe, but I better not. I have a KFC bag directly behind this laptop. So I'm no fucking <laughs> exemplar of this. I really fucking struggle with, with this, right? Um, in fact, I got an email from um, a message on Facebook, actually, at the height of COVID when everything was locked down in Britain. I got a message on Facebook from someone I hadn't seen since I was 16. And she was like, oh, Johan, I just wanted to check you're okay. And I was like, that's nice of you to ask. I'm fine, but it's been a long time. What, why now? And she said, oh, I don't know if you remember this, but when we were 16, we watched this apocalyptic film about the end of the world. And we all talked about what is the point in the collapse of civilization when you would just give up and kill yourself? 
And she said, I remembered you said, it's when they shut down all the branches of KFC and McDonald's. <laughs> and I suddenly realised they have actually done that. So yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. is Johan okay? And I was like, oh my God, my vision of like the end of the world fucking happened. But, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm very sweary today. I'm not usually this bad. Uh, it's I'm yeah, we love it. The, the, yeah, so this is something I struggle with, but you can see how that's another factor that's really affecting our attention and focus. A hundred percent. And I think like, like we've been naming a lot of things. And one thing I do want to touch on as well is including with, you know, the social media, all the work that we have to do. And then also with the food that we eat, it's also what about sleep? How is that affecting our intention and focus? Because, you know, I'm sure the average people that sleep nowadays has been dropping since they, you know, been researching it. So how is sleep um, damaging our attention and focus. You're so right, Chris, that, that we sleep 20% less than we did a century ago. Children sleep 85 minutes less a night than they did a century ago, which is kind of incredible. So I interviewed loads of the leading sleep experts in the world. Um, and it's interesting, this guy at Harvard Medical School, who's probably the leading, arguably the leading sleep expert in the world, a guy called Dr. Charles Seisler said to me, you know, even if nothing else had changed, that alone would be causing a huge attention crisis, right? And uh, the figures on this are incredible. If you stay awake for 19 hours, your attention deteriorates as much as if you had got legally drunk, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, and um, I remember this study that Dr. Seisler did that really drove it home to me. He, he got tired people, they weren't that tired, and put them into brain scans. And what he discovered is you can appear to be awake, you can be looking around you and talking, but whole parts of your brain can have gone to sleep. <clears throat> it turns out when we say we're half asleep, that's not a metaphor, right? A lot of us are literally half asleep a lot of the time. 40% of us are chronically sleep deprived. And the reason why this is so important for attention is, and there's an amazing woman called Professor Roxanne Prichard who, who helped me to understand this. Um, when you're, We think of sleep as like a passive process. Oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, right? It's wasted time. Sleep is an incredibly active process. When you're sleeping, your brain is healing. It's repairing itself. So the whole time you're awake, your brain is building up something called metabolic waste, which is, she called it brain cell poop, which really helped me to understand it. And then when you go to sleep, a kind of watery fluid is rinsed through your brain and it carries all this brain cell poop down into your, your, your liver and eventually it goes out your body. When you don't sleep eight hours a night, your brain doesn't get to clean itself properly. So your brain is literally clogged up. You know that thing when you're tired, I've got it now, when you feel almost like hungover, your brain is actually clogged up, right? Um, so sleep is absolutely essential. But, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about in relation to the, the themes that you explore in your podcast. So kids in particular are massively struggling to focus, right? Uh, for every one child who was identified with attention problems, serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred kids who've been identified with that problem. And I, and this is particularly a problem for young boys and young men. And I think there's lots of reasons, but I actually think there's two elements in, um, there's been some really big changes in childhood, right? So we sleep less, our kids eat the wrong things. They're exposed to this technology that hacks and invades them. There's loads of stuff going on. But I actually think there's, there's two things that are particularly bad for boys, although they're bad for girls as well. One is the nature of our school system, right? If you wanted to design a school system that destroyed people's ability to focus, you would basically design the school system we have, right? Mm. So wow. 
attention evolved to attach to meaning. When something is meaningful to you, it's not that hard to focus on it. When something is meaningless, your attention just slips and slides off it, right? And we rebuilt our whole school system around grilling kids for meaningless tests and things they don't understand and don't care about, right? So they, the second President Bush introduced the No Child Left Behind Act that massively restructured education as being all around tests and fucking meaningless tests as well. And in the four years that followed, ADHD diagnoses went up by 25%, right? And that's because kids don't want to focus on meaningless shit and they're not wrong to not want to focus on meaningless shit, right? That's actually a very healthy instinct in those kids. I think that's particularly bad for boys. Um, but I also think there's a bigger change that has really played out for young men. And actually, I think of all the conversations I had in the book, for the book, there's a young man, a young boy, a boy who was 14, um, who I interviewed, I think was probably the most moving conversation that I just wanted to talk to you guys about. So I don't think it's a coincidence that this change, this huge increase in children's attention problems has happened at the same time as a really profound change in childhood. And one of the heroes of my book is, you should totally have her on your podcast, you'd love her, a woman called Lenore Skenazi. Remind me, I'll introduce you to her. Um, And Lenore is one of the heroes of the book, not because she describes the problem, it's easy to describe problems, but because she built the solution. And everyone who's a dad who's listening, I really recommend that you you look into her her and her work. Um, And obviously I write about her in the book. So Lenore grew up in a suburb of Chicago in the 1960s. And from when she was five years old, she would leave the house on her own and walk to school alone. And that's what every five-year-old did. She would generally bump into all the other five-year-olds because everyone walked to school on their own then, right? When they got to the school, there was a um, busy road. So there was a 10-year-old boy whose job was to help the five-year-olds cross the street, right? They were going to school and then at 3 p.m. or whenever it was, they would leave school and they wandered around the neighborhood. Lenore would wander around the neighborhood, play with the other kids. There were no adults kind of, I mean, there were adults around, but no one was sort of supervising them and telling them what to do. And then she would go home at like five or six when she was hungry, right? That is what childhood looked like for basically all of human history, right? Kids played freely with other kids most of the time without adults standing over them. They would wander around the neighborhood. They would explore it. By the time Lenore became a mother, it was by the time Lenore was a mom in the 90s, she was living in Queens in New York. That had almost completely ended. In fact, by 2003, um, only 10% of American children ever played outside without an adult supervising them. And that 10% got like an average of 12 minutes a week. So basically it ended, right? So suddenly childhood became this thing that happened behind closed doors under adult supervision. And um, it turns out there's so many things in this childhood that we've lost that are essential for attention and focus. To use the most obvious no shit Sherlock one, exercise, right? Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention problems in the world, has shown kids who get to exercise get more brain connections, their attention is much better. The single best thing you can do for kids who can't focus is let them go and run around. Let them run freely and then let them come back, right? Anyone listening, if you'll know when you exercise, you, you get the endorphins going, you can pay attention better. It burns off stress. Your, your brain works better if you exercise. We have taken away exercise for children, right? Obviously, it became much worse in the last two years because of the pandemic. But even before then, we basically locked up our kids, right? But also, 
even more than the exercise, there's all this evidence that when kids play freely, they learn how to pay attention. So they learn what they actually care about, which is really important for attention because you, when you discover something that's meaningful to you, then you can pay attention to it. Um, they learn how to persuade the other kids to pay attention to the thing they want to pay attention to. They learn how to take turns. They learn how to be brave because when you're playing with other kids, you'll you'll take a risk. Sometimes it will go wrong. You climb the tree, it gets too high. You know, you, you and that that is how you deal with anxiety because when you take risks and you see, ah, oh, I took the risk and I didn't die, you don't become so anxious and anxiety completely fucks attention. Um, we took all that away, right? What we do is we let kids play in these tiny confined spaces. In fact, the only place where kids get to explore anything now is on Fortnite and World of Warcraft. We can hardly be described that they become, be surprised they become so obsessed with them. Um, so Lenore is the hero of the book, because not because she saw this problem, but because she was like, okay, we've got to solve this. So at first she thought the solution was just to individually explain this to parents and persuade them to let their kids go out. And she would often start by saying to the parents, what is something that you loved when you were a child that you don't allow your own children to do? And people would go, oh, I used to ride my bike in the woods. I used to roll fucking marbles around in my mouth. People come up with all sorts of crazy shit, right? <clears throat> and I'd never let my child do that. But Lenore quickly realised it doesn't work to just try and persuade isolated parents. Because if you're the only parent who lets your kid out, they get frightened. You look crazy. Actually, often people will call the cops, right? Because they're like, why is this child on their own? So Lenore started to run a group called Let Grow. It's letgrow.org. I really recommend everyone go to it. And what this group does is they go to whole schools and whole communities and explain everyone to give their kids increasing levels of independence, building up to playing outdoors. And so one of the most moving conversations I had was with this boy in Long Island. So I went to a few Let Grow projects and spent time with them. There was this 14-year-old boy. He was a big, strong boy. He was taller than me and I'm not particularly short. And until this project had begun nine months before, he had never been allowed out of his house on his own, right? And I said to him, you know, they didn't even let him go for a jog around the block, his parents. And I was like, what, why didn't they let you out? And he said, oh, that my parents are afraid of all these kidnappings, he said. You know, to give you a sense of this, this is a town in Long Island where the French bakery is across the street from the olive oil store. And he had a <laughs> level of fear that would be appropriate if he lived in Ukraine right now, right? Wow. Um, and then this project began and him and his friends started to play outside. And I said, oh, what did you do? And he said, oh, we played ball games first. But then he said, we, we, just, we start, started to go into the woods. And he said, he leaned forward and he said, we didn't have any cell phone signal and we still went there. He said that would like awe in his, his voice. <laughs> and, and I said, what did you do in the woods? And he said, oh, we, we built a fort. And now we go and we sit in the fort, even though our phones don't work and we build things. And this might sound a bit over the top, but as this boy described it, it genuinely felt like watching a child come to life, right? Mm. The excitement in his face. And I thought about all these young men that I know all over the US, all over Britain, who never get to explore anything, right? And the, the joy of like exploring something. And Lenore was with me that day. And when he left, she turned to me and she said, look, think about human history, all of human history. Young men had to go out they had to hunt. They had to find things. They had to build things. And what we did is in the space of one generation, we took all that away from them. 
and it made them neurotic, it made them anxious. And those boys, given a tiny little sliver of freedom, went out and they built a fort because this is so deep in their nature. So what I argue in the book, I argue for lots of big things we need to do to rebuild our attention. But one of the things we've got to do, and it's so important to get this right with kids, because if they don't develop attention when they're children, it's, they're going to find it much harder as adults. We've got to restore childhood. We've got to let boys be boys. We don't do that in our culture. We don't let boys run around. We're the first human society ever to try to get kids to sit still for eight hours a day. It's fucking crazy. There's never been a society that did that. It's insane, right? No, everyone else, would, our ancestors would regard us as mad to try to do that. We've got to restore a kind of human childhood. And I think a lot of the problems that men are facing, clearly there's lots of things going on, but I think some of the problems men are facing is we haven't let them be boys when they were boys, right? Does that ring true to you? Does that does that sound right? No, no, this is so, literally, man, I got like 500 <laughs> ideas as you talk. I said, focus, focus, don't <laughs> let the focus. ideas distract you. So, so <laughs> I'm gonna share a brief story and I'm gonna share mm. an idea and then I wanna answer your question. When I was living in Staten Island, New York, I lived in a, a series of condominiums that are borderline townhomes, but borderline apartments. And we were outside literally 80% of the time. It, it, it was to a point, as most millennials can experience, a punishment was not being able to go outside. Yeah. <laughs> That's when, when so moved, interesting. Yeah. yeah. When I moved to Atlanta, uh, we were living in apartments. And in the apartments, we were outside 90% of the time. <laughs> and what ended up happening was similar to that. If you got punished, you would not go outside. Then later on, I moved to a house. So you would assume that the house, you have a big lawn, we have a big backyard, it's, it's, a, it's a safe neighborhood. It should be safer than a townhome, should be safer than an apartment in a great community. I went outside 5% of the time. Mm. And I literally would always go out and I would never see any of the other kids outside. So when I was reading that part of the book, it resonated so deeply with me because one of the themes that we had for this year is life happens offline. And so one of the, the, the challenges that we've seen is that a lot of young men, especially due to the COVID situation, they're growing up on, on the Internet. And by growing up on the internet, they're being so disconnected from real life, disconnected from real women, disconnected from real experiences. And so now that leads them to a lot of the tribalism and the animosity and resentment that's going on in today's world, but it also is negatively affecting the development as individuals. And so as you're communicating all these things, it reminded me so much of and lost connection when you talk about the Amish community. And I remember that that passage being so powerful because, you know, I, I'm always debating people about ADHD and stuff like that. But <laughs> it was it was so powerful because you clearly saw that young men have been deprived of the essential things that are required for their development. And when people are saying these guys are behind, I'm like, if you if you put any animal in a cage for years and then you throw it into the wild and you say, I wonder why it's not just roaming the savannah. I wonder why. 
And so, mm-hmm. so everything that you communicated resonated with me so deeply. And that's why we, we've been so adamant about not only doing things online, but really trying to reconnect men to one another, because especially in uh, when you haven't had that in your childhood, you definitely are going to struggle with connecting as an older adult. And that leads to a myriad of problems as you discuss in all of your books. Oh, you know, you put that so brilliantly. And I think, you know, this will sound like a joke. I promise you this is not a joke. There's this guy I went to interview called Professor Nicholas Dobman. He's actually a very nice man. He's a professor of veterinary science at Tufts, who's been the pioneer of diagnosing ADHD in dogs. So dogs are brought to, so I'll give you an example. There was a dog that was brought to him and the owner said, um, you know, I've really got a problem here. My dog barks all the time, is really anxious when I leave my dog. Um, so first of all, he tries sending them for training and the training helps a little bit, but not much. So she brings the dog back and he diagnosed the dog with ADHD and they started giving the dog Ritalin, the stimulant drug. And the owner was really pleased the dog didn't bark so much, right? So I go to interview him because he's been the pioneer of drugging animals across the board. So when you go to the zoo now, most animals are drugged to just make them quiescent, shut them up, right? And he was the kind of pioneer of that. All polar bears in American zoos are on meth or Prozac. It's I hate zoos. <laughs> They're fucking horrible, right? Lord. So I, I went to interview him. And I thought he would say what a lot of people say about children's attention problems. I thought he would go, oh, it's just a biological problem, right? It's not. There's a biological component for kids, but it's actually not most of what's going on. I thought he would say that. I thought he would say that analogy, go, oh, you know. Actually, he said to me, look, I mean, he says it, I use the exact words in the book, but he said, look, let's be honest. Dogs are meant to run around for four hours a day off leash, right? Basically, no American dog gets that. So they're stir crazy. He told me about a dog that lived in an apartment in Manhattan that had ADHD and inverted commas, was constantly barking and running around. It was sent to live on a farm upstate. Mysteriously, its ADHD disappeared when it got to run around. (laughs) And he used this phrase that really uh, stuck with me. He said that a lot of these animals have frustrated biological objectives, which really, it was a phrase that really lodged in my mind, right? So they have these frustrated biological objectives. It leads to sort of, a disorder in inverted commas. I mean, it's not a disorder for a dog to want to fucking run around, right? Also, yeah. it's not a disorder for a dog to be upset when you leave it on its own. Dogs are pack animals. They don't want to be left alone, right? But I think there's a real analogy with young boys. They've got frustrated biological objectives, right? They want to fucking run around. That's not a bad instinct. Just like the dog wanting to run around is not a bad instinct. That's a really healthy instinct. They'd be less obese if they ran around. They'd be healthier. But they'd be they'd be able to pay attention better. But I think this sort of interacts in another way. It goes right back to what we were saying at the start. A lot of what's going on, I'm just thinking about what you were saying about, you know, these young men who are shut inside and it get, they get kind of turning on themselves. And there's a moment, there's another person who'd be a great guest for you. I can introduce you. So I went to the first ever internet rehab center in the world. It's a place called Restart Washington. It's just outside Spokane in, in Washington State. And they get all kinds of young men there. They get all kinds of people, actually, but they disproportionately get young men and they disproportionately get young men who've become obsessed either with porn or with multiplayer online role-playing games. Like when I was there, it was World of Warcraft, but it wouldn't wouldn't be that now. And I spoke to a lot of these young men who were really nice, good young men. And it was so interesting because afterwards I went for... Uh, I went out for lunch with Dr. Hilary Cash, who runs the clinic. She's the co-founder. 
She's an amazing person. And she said to me, you've got to ask what these young men are getting out of these games. And they're getting something they used to get from the culture, right? That they no longer get. They're getting a sense that they're physically roaming around because they're fucking prisoners, right? They're getting a sense they're good at something. We have a culture that makes young men feel incompetent all the time. They're, they're, they're getting a sense that other people see them. This is a really lonely culture. 41% of Americans agree with the statement, no one knows me well. At least when you're playing the game, you feel like someone sees you. But what they're getting, you know, I thought a lot about their addiction to porn. I'm not anti-porn at all. Um, but in a way, I began to think the analogy between social media and social life, the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex, right? I'm not anti-porn, but if your whole sex life consisted of jerking off to porn, you'd be kind of pissed off because, and you, you, you'd be going around in a bad mood because we didn't evolve to jerk off over porn. We evolved to actually have sex and no one feels, you know, satisfied after, you know, after an hour jerking off compared to how they feel after sex, at least if it goes right. It doesn't always, uh, you know, the, the, and in a way, social media is a bit like that. Just like we didn't evolve to, jer to jerk off over screens, we evolved to have sex. We, we didn't evolve to stare at each other through screens. We didn't evolve to fucking type these little messages all the time. We evolved to look into each other's eyes. And I think one of the, COVID has been a fucking nightmare, obviously. But I think one of the advantages is, my friend Naomi Klein, who's a great writer, put it this way, is she said, in a way, so we've been on a trajectory where we've been interacting through screens more and more. And what happened is it's like we've been slammed into where we would have been 15 years from now if that trajectory had continued, right? Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly we were interacting through screens all the time. And, you know, how did it make us feel? It made us feel like shit. I didn't hear one person in the last two years say, oh, thank God, another Zoom call, right? No one fucking thought that, right? This has been horrendous. I mean, it's been better than having nothing, but it... But, but this has been really tough. And so I think we've got to think both about the, the the kind of symptom and the underlying problem. And if you create this vacuum, I think this is one of the things you're getting at, Hafiz, that's so important. If you create this vacuum of meaning, if you create this vacuum of purpose, if you imprison people, they, they're going to look for whatever fucking relief they can get, Right. And some of them, that'll take the form of anger. Anger gives you a kind of relief, right? Hatred gives you a kind of relief. It's not a good form of relief, but you can see how it happens. Some of it will be, you know, just obsessively using porn. At least you get some fucking relief when you jerk off compared to nothing. Some of it will be Oxycontin or whatever it might be. But, we, you know, there's this really, I don't often quote this in public because it can be misunderstood. But there's this really challenging line. There's a woman called Marianne Faithful who is most famous for having been Mick Jagger's girlfriend, which fucking pisses me off because she's much better than Mick Jagger. No disrespect to Mick Jagger, who's quite good. But she, she was, she's a British rock star. And in the 60s, she was homeless and she had a heroin addiction. And she says this really challenging line in her memoir about it. She says, heroin saved my life because if it wasn't for heroin, I would have killed myself at that point, Right. Now, Marianne is not saying that heroin is a good, a good solution to despair, obviously, for all the reasons everyone listening knows. What she's saying is it's the best solution she was offered at that point in her life. And I would argue a lot of these problems that young men are getting, whether it's porn addiction or, or whatever it is, they're the best solution they're being offered. 
So it's our job to give them better solutions and help them find better solutions. If you just condemn the, the behaviour without understanding the, the vacuum that that behaviour is trying to fill, you, you're not going to solve the problem, right? If you just say, well, why, why are these young men doing this? What's wrong with them? You're just missing the point which is they've got a lot of fucking pain and they're dealing with the pain the best way they can. And if you don't like the way they're dealing with the pain and a lot of these things, you know, we don't want people to be angry all the time. That isn't good. It's not good for anyone. Then you've got to come up with a better solution, right? What are some of those solutions? Because I, I I think we also need to think about even futuristic because you, you touch on some things that have been going in my head about how we've been moving forward and more people are working remotely. So you now you got people working at home, you know, they're on a Zooms calls yeah. and, and you got, you know, that that looking at a screen is not a social interaction. Like like Fee said, we wanted to do the the pro the campaign of life happens offline because those experiences that you need to develop yourself as a man has to happen. But now we're moving to a, a, a society and culture that wants to remote work remotely that wants to create a metaverse that like like artificial Ugh. intelligence and virtual reality these things are becoming more progressive by the day and they're getting here sooner than the message of finding better solutions they they're moving at a more rapid pace so what is your recommendation for you know so those solutions while ai and these tech companies are all you know light years ahead of us you know, when you say that, it <laughs> made me think about, um, I interviewed this guy called Jaron Lanier, who's a really kind of big tech designer. And he used to advise like dystopian films about nightmare futures, like Minority Report, the Tom Cruise film. He was like an advisor where he would, he would think of like horrific future technologies for the films. And he said to me, I stopped doing it because I kept designing these horrific future technologies that I'd imagined and people in Silicon Valley kept watching it and going, oh, that's really cool. Let's design that. Yeah, yeah, he was like, yeah, yeah. fucking hell, that's not what I want. Yeah, so I would yeah. say in response to what you said, I would say two things. So I talk about lots of things in Stolen Focus that people can do as individuals, but I've also argue that we've got to form what I would call an attention movement. We've got to fight back against the forces that are doing this. We can regulate big tech, right? There are specific aspects of these apps that we use that are designed to hack and invade our attention. We can fucking ban them. We don't have to allow it. You know, Dr. James Williams, who's worked at the heart of Google and now quit because he was so horrified by what they were doing and has become one of the leading philosophers of attention in the world, said to me, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The entire internet has existed for 10,000 days we can fix this shit, right? We can fix it. If we come together, it doesn't have to work the way it works right now. We don't have to, we can deal with the parts that are invading our attention. And all the 12 factors that I write about, we can deal with. Obviously, I go into a lot of detail about that. But, you know, I'm just thinking about what you said about the need to meet offline. And there's a group of people who I wrote about in Lost Connections, my depression book. You know, I think you can tell, you know, from my books, I learned a lot from experts. The people who taught me most in the whole world we're not experts. They're a group of people that, that, if it's okay, I'll just tell you this story because I think they show the profound truth of what you're articulating. So in the summer of 2011 in Berlin, in Germany, a Turkish German woman called Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair and she put a sign in her window. So Nuria lived on the ground floor of a really big house, a big rough housing project in a place called Koti. And the sign she put in her window said, 
I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted from my home next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself. She puts the notice up. Now, this is a big anonymous housing project, like one in Dallas where you guys are or anywhere, where no one really knew anyone. It was a poor neighborhood. And basically three kinds of people lived in this neighborhood. There were recent Muslim immigrants like this woman, Nuria. There were gay men and there were punk squatters. And these three groups, no one knew anyone. And these three groups really didn't like each other. But people saw this sign in Nuria's window and they knock on her door. They're like, are you okay? Do you need any help? She said, fuck you. I don't want any help. I'm going to kill myself. But people start, and they shut the door, but people start talking outside her door, people who'd never met and would never have met. And a lot of people, rents had been really rising in Berlin for a long time, and they'd been particularly rising in this neighbourhood, Cotty, and loads of people had already been evicted and everyone was worried they were going to be next. So people started talking. They're like, what could we do? And someone had an idea. There's a big thoroughfare that goes through this housing project into the centre of Berlin, Mitte. And someone had the idea, you know what, on Saturday, if we just block the road and we have a protest, the media will probably come, there'll be a bit of fuss, they'll probably let her stay in her apartment. There might even be a bit of pressure to keep our rents down, why don't we try it? So Saturday came and they blocked the road and they had a protest. And Nuria was like, I'm going to kill myself, I might as well let them push me into the middle of the street. So she sits there and the media turn out and Nuria does these interviews and the residents do these interviews and it gets to the end of the day and the police turn up and they say, okay, everyone, you've had your fun, take down this this barricade you built, go home. And the people who lived at Cotty said, well, hang on, you haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. Actually, we want a rent freeze for our entire housing project. When we get that, then we'll take the barricade down. But of course they knew the minute they walked away from the barricade, the police would just rip it down anyway. So one of my favourite people in Cotty, Tanya Gartner, she's she's one of the punk squatters. She wears tiny little mini skirts, even in Berlin winter. She's hardcore. Um, She had this idea. In her apartment, she had a klaxon, those things that make really loud noises at soccer matches. She went and got it. She came down. She said, "Okay, everyone, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade. We're going to man it 24 hours a day until they give in and tell Nuria she can stay and we get a rent freeze for all of us. If the police come before then, let off the klaxon. We'll all come down and we'll all stop them. So people start signing up to man this barricade in shifts 24 hours a day. Um, And you get these really weird pairings. So Tanya in her tiny little miniskirt was paired with Nuria, who's a very religious Muslim in a full hijab, right? And if I remember right, Tanya and Nuria had the Thursday night shift. And at first, it's super awkward. They sit there, we're like, we have got nothing to talk about. We couldn't be more different. As the nights went on, they started talking. Tanya and Nuria discovered they had something incredibly powerful in common. Um, Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 16 from her village in Turkey. And she had two babies, two young babies. And she was sent she went there to earn enough money to send back for her husband in Turkey to come and join her. So she worked all these jobs. She looked after her kids. She did everything she could. And just before she had the money, she got word from home that her husband had died. And sitting there in the cold in Cotty with Tanya, she told her something she'd never told anyone in Germany before. She'd always told people that her husband had died of a heart attack. Actually, he died of tuberculosis, which at that time was seen as like a shameful disease of poverty, right? 
That's when Tanya talked about how she came to live in Cotty. She had come when she was even younger, when she was 15. She had this middle-class family who hated that she was obsessed with punk. So they threw her out and she and she came to live in a squat and very soon afterwards she realized she got pregnant. Tanya and Nuria realized they had both been children with children of their own in this place they didn't understand. They realized they were incredibly similar. They became really good friends. Um, and all these pairings kept happening. There was a young lad called Mehmet who kept being nearly thrown out of school. They said he had ADHD. He got paired with this super grumpy old German white guy called Dieter who started helping him with his homework when they were doing their shift together. Mehmet started to do much better at school. Um, directly opposite this, this housing project, there's a gay club called Zudblock, which is a um, really fucking hardcore gay club. It's run by a man I love called... Um, uh, uh, and <laughs> so this, this, this called Richard Stein. And um, when this gay club first opened, you know, there's a lot of very religious Muslims in this community. At first, they were really pissed off. In fact, people smashed the windows. They really pushed back against this gay club. And, um, and it's a pretty full on club, right? To give you a sense of what it's like, the previous place that Richard owned was called Cafe Anal, <laughs> which I always thought you wouldn't want to have a sandwich from Cafe Anal, right? But, um, so when the protest began, the gay club gives all their furniture to the barricade. And after a few months, they said, you know, you guys should have your meetings in our club, right? Why don't you come and we'll give you free food. We'll give you free drink. And even the kind of progressive people at Cotty were like, look, we're not going to persuade these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings underneath posters for fisting night, right? It's not going to happen. It did start to happen. As one of the Turkish German women there, Neriman Tanker said to me, we all realised we had to take these small steps to get to understand each other. After the protests had been going on for nine months, one day a guy turned up at the protest called Tunkai. And it's clear when you meet Tunkai, he's got some kind of learning difficulties and he's got a misshapen palate. Um, and he'd been living on the streets, but he's got a lovely energy about him and he started helping out. And after he'd been hanging around for a while, everyone loved him. The, the, Turkish women, the punks, the gays, everyone liked Tunkai. And after he'd been hanging around for about a week, they realised he was homeless. And they said to him, we don't want you to be homeless. They'd actually built this barricade, because a lot of the people who work live in Kotia, construction workers, they'd actually built this barricade into this amazing permanent structure with like a roof, doors. It's really nice. They were like, you should come and live in this thing we've built. We really like you. So Tunkai moved in and he became a much loved part of the kind of Kotia protest. And a year later, one day, the police came to inspect. They would do this every now and then. And Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. He thought the police were arguing. So he went to try to hug one of the police officers. And they thought he was attacking them. So they arrested him. That was when it was discovered that Tunkai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital for 20 years, often literally in a padded cell. No one went to see him. Um, and he'd escaped one day, he'd lived on the streets for a little while and found his way to Cotty. So the police took him back to the psychiatric hospital. He was locked away again, at which point the entire Cotty protest turned into a kind of free Tunkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital at the other side of Berlin. And I remember these psychiatrists are like, what the fuck is this? We've got this guy we've had locked away for 20 years and suddenly there's all these women in hijabs, these punks and these very camp gay men demanding his release. What's going on here? And I remember Uli Hartman, one of the protesters, said to them, but the thing is, you don't love him. 
He doesn't belong with you. We love him. He belongs with us. And they're saying, this isn't some pity thing. This isn't some charity thing. He makes our lives better, right? And I remember thinking when I heard Uli say that, how many of us, if someone carted us away to a psychiatric hospital, would have like hundreds of people descend and go, no, we love this person. They don't belong with you, right? Anyway, many things happened at Koti. They got Tunkai back. He lives there still. They got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum to keep free, keep rents down across the whole of Berlin. It got the largest number of written signatures in the history of Germany and rents were freezed across Berlin. But the last time I saw Nuria, the woman who started this protest, she said to me, look, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. That's great. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these incredible people all along and I never knew, right? And to me, I remember Neriman, one of the other Turkish German women saying to me, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, I grew up in a village and I called everyone in my village and, this, and all the people I knew there my home. And then I came to live in the Western world and I learned that here, you're meant to call home just your four walls. And she said she realized in some sense she was homeless until this protest began because you need to feel you belong, right? And your four walls aren't enough for that. And then she said this whole protest began and I got to know all these people and I started to call this whole place my home. And I, I realized how much, you know, um, there's a Bosnian writer called um, Alexander Heyman who said home is where people notice when you're not there, right? By that standard, a lot of us are homeless. And I remember one time I was sitting with Tanya outside that gay club Ziploc and she said to me, when you're all alone and you feel like shit, you think there's something wrong with you. But what we did is we came out of our corner crying and we started to fight. And we realized we were surrounded by people who felt the same way, right? And to me, this is what I want to say to people. If you're all alone, you'll feel like shit. But when you connect with the people around you, um, around something that is meaningful, that's not based on hatred of other people. People in Cotty were like, we fucking hate liberals, we hate conservatives, whatever it was. They were really different, right? And they, and they remain very different. They're, they don't agree on a lot of things, right? In fact, they disagree quite strongly. You know, Nariman's not in favour of gay marriage. There's lot, They disagree on lots of things, but they found that you can, the joy of being with other people is so much greater than the joy of being alone and fucking hating people and being on screens all the time. So, you know, I can tell you about all these experts I met and they were amazing and I learned a lot of science and it's important to learn that. But I think the people in Cotty taught me more than anything about what we need to do, right? We need to get out of our fucking houses and we need to reconnect with each other. Because when you do that, life begins to happen. Yeah. No, man, that that was so powerful, Johan. <laughs> I really, I really appreciate that story. Just I remember reading it for the first time, and it really, it really changed the way I viewed a lot of things in life. And and I and I think, to me, as I'm reflecting on just all your works and all your writings, um, what really stands out to me so much is your desire to see change, and. Chris asked a question previously um, where he was saying, like, what are what are some of the solutions? And to me, the solutions are the individuals working together collectively 
to create communities that show that there is alternative ways that life can be lived. Um, by you going and researching what went on in Portugal, I believe, um, you're able to show this alternative ways of doing um, drug re rehabilitation by you going and to the Amish communities and seeing about how they let the boys freely roam and have fun and, and it alleviates a lot of depression, ADHD. You see there's alternative ways of curing depression, ADHD by you going to learn about the, the play project and then going to New York and seeing this young man and seeing that how much going outside radically transformed their life. You're able to show that there's alternative ways of health and well-being that can progress society forward. And I think it's our job as individuals to to be a part of things like that, to to do whatever it takes to be able to come together and give people meaning and give people value. And and I will I will close with a, with a story and uh, Chris can share and if you want to share in closing. There was the, and I always butcher this story, so I'm paraphrasing it. <laughs> but uh, a young lady, she was a medical student in United States, and before she was begin her before she can do a residency, she wanted to volunteer with Mother Teresa, and I believe at an orphanage in India. And so she was there, you know, with with Mother Teresa taking care of all the kids and seeing just the abstract poverty that a lot of children were going through in India. And she went up to Mother Teresa and she said, Mother Teresa, you know, I'm going to quit my job in America. I'm no longer going to be a doctor. I'm going to come here. I'm going to volunteer at this orphanage. I'm going to help because the kids here are struggling so much with poverty and I want to be a, a solution to the change. And Mother Teresa looked at the young lady she shook her head and she said, no, you can't come here. You need to stay where you're at. She's like, Mother Teresa, how does that make any sense? Like, they need my help. Look at the poverty. Look what's going on. And Mother Teresa told that young lady a phrase that has resonated to me so deeply today. And she said, you look at the people in the East as if they're poor, and they are. But the physical poverty in the East is rival only to the drastic, horrendous emotional and spiritual poverty in the West. And so everything that you're describing in Lost Connections and Chasing the Stream and Chasing the Scream and Stolen Focus all is a byproduct of the emotional poverty that men deal with every single day. And I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for your work. I'm so grateful for your stories because it's shedding a light to these problems, but more than just being a referee and shedding a light to the problem, you are providing tangible solutions for a change. And so anybody reading, watch this episode, you need to buy all three of these books because I know I've implemented a lot of things that you've taught into my own personal life. And I truly believe it will help alleviate society to improve focus, to rid depression, and to also help people not be this, um, addicted to drugs and other vices that will ruin their lives. Yeah, I mean, I love everything you said, Hafiz, and and just to add on to that, um, you know, you're not alone. You know, with all the things that you're going through, and and you, it's not something wrong with you. You know, these devices and these companies are really attacking, you know, us, and they're stealing our focus. They're stealing our attention. You know, and they are literally putting us in this kind of cul-de-sac of misery. And I think it's going to take conversations like this books you know like you have uh have written 
and and the information need to be spread out there and say, hey, this is something that is hurting not only you, not only your community, but the world as a whole. And we all need to take responsibility, not only for ourselves, but us as community to change that. And it happens outside. It happens, you know, putting us in your place of, of uncomfortability, you being vulnerable, you actually going to speak to somebody. And I think, you know, those small steps and leaps of faith can make drastic waves for our society to change. And like Hafiz said, we just appreciate you doing the work and you have that ability and that hunger and that desire to see a problem. And you went and found and researched certain solutions. And now you are a champion of those solutions. And it's just good to see that men are standing in a gap of problems and say, I'm not going to let this continue to go on any further. And, you know, with that, you know, we thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm really moved by this whole conversation. And I know it sounds like an ironic compliment to say thank you for paying so much attention to the subject. But like the I'm really moved by that. And I think you're totally right that the most empowering thing you can ever say to someone is the truth, which is it doesn't have to be this way. Right. There's a different way things can be where you will feel better and we can have and we and you can help other people feel better. Um, so, yeah, the, these these it's I'm actually very optimistic at the end of the journeys for all three books because, you know, there are some things that are just bad shit in life, right? That you can't do anything about. We're all going to die, right? Nothing we can do about that. I can't solve that one, right? There's all sorts of problems that are just sort of inevitable problems. Some people will get leukemia. There's nothing we can do about it. I mean, maybe there is. I haven't investigated it, but you know what I mean? You get the point I'm making. These are not inevitable problems. It's not like the rain, right? Um, these are, these are uh, of course, there'll always be to some degree some of these problems, but the absolutely enormous level at which we're facing them now is the product of human actions that we can change with our human actions, right? We can put this right, but it requires, think about attention. It requires a shift in psychology. We should absolutely do all the individual changes that I talk about in the book. But also we've got to shift our consciousness, like you were just saying, Chris. You know, we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little shitty crumbs of attention from his table, right? We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can take them back from the fuckers who've stolen them. <laughs> that feels like a rousing. But I'm so, <laughs> there it is. I'm so going to employ you to be like my impersonator. If only we looked a bit more similar. Like, <laughs> As me, oh, uh, I don't know no, if you can white I... up and do a British accent. <laughs> but, uh, thank you so much. I meant to also say, and my publishers tase me. I meant to say, anyone who wants to get the book can go to w. Well, you can get it pretty much anywhere. But if you go to www.stolenfocusbook.com, you can see where to get the audio book, the book, or the ebook. I meant to say you can get it from all good bookstores, but the truth is you can also get it from shitty bookstores. We don't have like. A <laughs> I also got in trouble at the end of a podcast about a year ago, where I was interviewed by this 50-year-old guy. And at the end, he said, so what's your Twitter? And I said it. And he said, what's your Facebook? And I said it. And he said, what's your Instagram? And I said it. And then he said, what's your Snapchat? And I said, I am a 43-year-old man. The only 43-year-old <laughs> men on Snapchat are definitely pedophiles, right? <laughs> and he didn't laugh at all. And I've got this bad thing where if someone doesn't laugh at my joke, I always go further. So I said, you know that show To Catch a Predator where they sort of catch <laughs> I said the next season of To Catch a Predator, they should just go up to adult men in the street and say, what is your Snapchat? And if they have one, fucking immediately arrest them, right? Throw them in the van, right? That's the... So I'm glad we got through this interview without me accidentally calling you pedophiles because I then looked this guy up and he's 50 and he's 
quite big on Snapchat. So I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. And next time I'm in Dallas, let's all go out for a drink. 